Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. In the not-so-long-ago history of Canada, Pierre-Esprit Radisson occupies a special place. If you like explorers, and if you like adventurers, this guy is in your hall of fame. He pretty well did everything, suffered everything, won everything, and lost everything. He was even a handsome man, straight out of central casting. It's a shame that movies and television have not done more about him so that people would know more about him. But we used to. There was a film made in 1941 called Hudson's Bay, and the actor Paul Mooney played Radisson. The CBC Radio-Canada also produced a bilingual 39-episode television series in 1957-1958 called Radisson. Jacques Godin, the great actor, played the lead role, and the late great René Caron played Des Groseillers, his partner. Marc Bourri was born precisely when that series played on the CBC, so maybe it had an impact. He was taken by this character and he placed a big, successful bet on him. His Bushrunner, The Adventures of Pierre-Esprit Redisson, was published in 2019 by Biblioasis, a small and courageous firm in Windsor, Ontario, and it was announced in early March 2020 that his book won the prestigious RBC Taylor Prize. Mark Bourri, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast and congratulations. Thank you. You're the witness to yesterday this time around. Where are you going to take me? How about May of 1660? What happened? Let's go up the Ottawa River from Montreal uh, to the Long Sioux Rapids, which don't exist anymore, to the fight between Adame Dollard and several young French Canadians, or French people actually from France at the time, and a group of Wendats who, for whatever reason, there's an awful lot of controversy of why they're there, uh, engage in a, in a brawl with what they think is a fairly small group of Iroquois warriors, uh, but it turns out to be several hundred. This goes badly for Dollard and his friends. Some of the Huron may make it out alive, uh, but not none of the French do. And when it's all over, Mr. Dollard and his friends are hanging in pieces from trees along the side of the Ottawa River as a, as a warning to anybody else who decides to take on the Iroquois control of what's basically the main highway into the interior of North America. And so these guys hang around from May till August. And while all this has been going on, Pierre Radisson, who's now, let me do the math here, about 24, is up in the area of what we, what's now Duluth, Minnesota, and inland a bit from Lake Superior, from the south part of Lake Superior. Um, and he is trading with all kinds of really interesting people. He's trading with the Sioux who live around there who aren't on horses yet. He's trading with the Cree, uh, same thing with them, uh, and the, actually the, the Swampy Cree have come down to Lake Superior to fish and trade, uh, the Ojibwe, the Menominee, Huron refugees, because this part of the Great Lakes region is where all the refugees from the Beaver War um, that started in the 1630s, actually really started with Champlain, but picks up ferociously in the 1630s, the refugees, the people who've lost this war, are all living up in there, uh, as far as they can get from the Iroquois. 
So he leaves with a group of people, uh, of indigenous people. He's got all these furs and everything, and he's heading to Montreal. And as he's going by in August, there are pieces of Dollard and the rest of the French guys. And it's pretty clear that if they can get through there, A, they're lucky, and B, the Western fur trade up the Ottawa is dead. And so why is this important? Because Radisson realizes that if he's going to go out west again to trade, he's going to have to go some other way. And he's got maps. He loves maps. He's got a map by Sanson that shows the uh, James Bay about 150 kilometers from Lake Superior. <laughs> so he's going to sail in there someday. This is the big. This is Plan B if the Ottawa's closed, and that's what he does. And then the beauty of Radisson, what makes Radisson resonate with everybody is he blames the tax man for the whole thing. That if he hadn't been taxed and treated so badly by bureaucrats in Quebec, uh, he would have never, ever uh, wrecked their trade and sold out to the competition. And and he is a quintessential Canadian on that score. <laughs> Blame it on the tax man. Blame it on the tax man, the Quebecers and the bureaucrats. Uh, is there anything more Canadian point, than that? Your point is that May 1660 really changed his approach to the trade, did it? Yeah, it, it killed the, the fur trade in Mon Montreal and Quebec City, relied on using the Ottawa River. And for about two or three years, the key time that Radisson is making up his mind what he's going to do, and when he's got some money in his pocket, that route is close. And they never know when it's good. We know it was only close for two or three years, but they didn't know that. So he starts to act accordingly. So he goes down to the Gaspé and to Acadie, and they kick him out. They don't. He's a stranger. They don't want him around. So he ends up in Boston, and then he ends up in England, and the whole thing goes on from there. But that's a key, key decision that he makes to open up the Western fur trade through Hudson Bay, and do it with the English because the English are prepared to grant this land to a company. And that's how they operate: the East India Company, the Africa Company. Uh, these are colonial enterprises. Right. But don't go too far in our story here. Let, let's start with, with let's start with the basics. Who is Pierre Esprit Radisson? He's a 24-year-old. Who is this guy? What's he doing there? He's a genius. Uh, I, I think I have to give him credit for that. He's a linguistic wizard. Uh, he is dumped in New France at around the time of the Fronde in in France. I, not many historians make that connection, but apparently his parents were in Paris, which is right in the center of where the Fronde was. So he ends up with his half-sister who's running a store in Trois-Rivières, which is a little hole-in-the-wall town under siege, and is almost immediately captured by the Mohawk. So, but the, the neat thing about him, when he, this is when he's 14 or so, he can, he can read and write, which puts him in a really interesting place. Um, he is not particularly religious or ideological in any kind of way, and... Um, his family life is obviously so bad that being kidnapped by the Mohawks is one of the better things that happens to him. The most influential things, one of the most influential things. Uh, no, I think it was actually for him a really personally good thing. He, uh, after, after he started cooking for these guys, most people would have, at 14, would have just cried and begged and stuff, but he, he didn't like the food much. So he started cooking for the, for the Mohawk warriors and paddling and stuff. And, he, he, I don't know if he deliberately ingratiated himself, but he he ended up convincing them not to um, not to kill him, 
which is usually what happened to people, which is always what happened to French people who were taken by the Mohawk at that point. They didn't keep prisoners. And so he gets to the Mohawk country, and he's a kid who, like I said, has had a ghastly family life, been shipped out to, to Quebec, and he's adopted by uh, Mohawk parents who are fabulous people. One is a, is a, is a top military chief, his new father, and his mother is a clan mother, a very influential woman in the community, they're literally loaded. These people are rich uh, compared to any French people he knows or any Mohawk people. And um, they love him like crazy, and they save his bacon many times until he finally... They adopted him. They adopted him. They they bought him clothes. They gave him a little gun. They sent him on a war party. They He had these sisters who were always doing stuff for him. And um, he was just a little prince there with them, and and uh, he adored them. He 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 never talks about his emotions and the things he writes unless he's talking about them. They're the only people he ever really expresses love for in any of his writings. He learns the ways of the indigenous people. He gets involved in trade. He gets involved in the fur trade. Well, first he learns their language, which is absolutely important. Another thing that he learns is he picks up quickly on how things work among the indigenous people in, in terms of their social life, what they expect from people, that sort of thing. And then when he, he leaves them, he gets back to New France, spends some time with working for the Jesuits, and then he gets involved in the fur trade. Um, his his sister has, like in the meantime when he's gone, married this guy, Grossilier, who is sort of the opposite of Radisson. He, he becomes a great foil through the story because he he doesn't know the languages. He he doesn't know the score with the with the indigenous people. He doesn't like them. He rips them off. He's your standard, what we think of as a European a colonist. And Radisson has a lot of dexterity as he moves through these cultures. Um, so anyway, he hooks up with Grossilier, who's older, who's who's been in Huronia, up in the Georgian Bay region with the with the Jesuits, and he's also been out west. So Grossilier may have got as far as as the as the Great Plains before he and Radisson ever got together, and and they start these big fur trade adventures, and these these are serious uh, trading trips, and they're successful. They are so successful. When he comes back uh, at the time that he spots what's left of the uh, Dollard expedition, they have enough furs to literally save the French colony in the St. Lawrence. At that point, the French are seriously considering leaving. And, we, we, you know, they didn't mean that as sort of a bluff. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the colonies that were being started by European countries along the seaboard, like the, 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 the Dutch were leaving, the, the, uh, the, the Swedes were leaving New Jersey, and the French were would have probably taken an offer to sell that colony at that point, uh, just the way uh, the Dutch put the colony in New Amsterdam up for sale. The, the French and the Brits were both after that colony at one point. It, it, they weren't worth that much, frankly. Radisson is known especially for the founding of the Hudson's Bay Company. What are the circumstances around that? He ended up going to Boston because he couldn't go out west, and he ended up with some Brits who were there, they were actually literally kicking the tires of the Dutch colony in, in New York. And uh, he became friends with one of the diplomats because nobody else would talk to this guy because he'd had an affair that, that scandalized Boston. So they became close, and, and that diplomat talked Radisson into going back, back with him to England. Uh, they're caught by pirates on the way, dumped in Spain. So he shows up late for the Great Plague of, <laughs> in London, but he's there for the Great Fire. And... and 
because the plague is going on, he gets to go out with the court, which is the English court is is settled in at Oxford. Um, but but Rupert, Prince Rupert, who's one of the greater minds of the time, he's in Windsor Castle because that's where his lab is, and he's doing things like trying to turn lead into gold and stuff. So uh, Charles II meets Radisson, likes him a lot, get uh, sends him to Rupert, and gives Radisson some money and some time, and he says, write your whole story down. So he does, and and he so Radisson is stuck there because the 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 Brits are losing a war with the Dutch. He can't get to to um, North America, but but at that point, Rupert and his friends put together the Hudson Bay Company, and they do it in coffee shops. It's sort of like the way coffee shops work now. People they would come in, work out, work out the details, put their money in, hire a ship, and that was the Hudson Bay Company. No offices, nothing like that. Fabulous setup that you got there. Um, no records, no nothing at first, and um, and the idea was to send a ship out and come have it come back with furs, and and that is how Radisson sort of quote unquote founded the Hudson Bay Company. Now he did some talking to people, uh, probably the Royal Society and people like that, but it was a fairly easy sell once he's pulled out the maps and explained how you do it. He's a clever. He's a clever manipulator. He's also a very good businessman, isn't he? He's good at making money, but he's not good at keeping it. No. So the Hudson's Bay. I mean, so he Hudson's Bay starts in 1670, um, but it fall. He falls out of favor. He winds up in in Tobago. How did that happen? One of the sad things is that if you have a trade secret and then you tell a whole bunch of people, it's not really a secret anymore. And <laughs> as time went on. More and more Brits were learning how to deal with the indigenous Cree, the swampy Cree of the Hudson Bay area. So he gets shunted aside enough that he decides to blow, and he goes back to the French, and they send him on an expedition to the Caribbean to take out the Dutch forts. And on that expedition, uh, he he's um, he's in the um, Azores, uh, and he sees fighting there, and then he. Then he's in Tobago and sees the destruction of the um, the Dutch garrison there when the when the um, ammunition dump blew up, and then he got on a ship in the the fleet of the Duc d'Estrée, who sailed his entire fleet and a whole fleet of pirate vessels that were with him into um, rocks and shoals at the Ile Las Aves, which is off the coast of Venezuela. So basically, they. The pirates were scouting ahead. Radisson was on a, a man of war with the French, regular French Navy. The pirates see you know, white caps of, of the shoal, fire off a cannon, and Destry gets it in his head that a battle starts. So this is middle of the night, no moon. Hoist his sails, and they sail the whole fleet in. There is almost nothing on the historical record about that, about how many people died. It was hundreds yeah. upon hundreds upon hundreds. Uh, Radisson survives, but Radisson can eat people. He has a taste for human flesh. Uh, he he and the pirates seem to do just fine, and but he's got his bag of money on the ship, and so he's broke again. But yeah, that was just these these this sort of a almost like a side adventure. Gets back to France, um, and they send him to Quebec, and for Quebec Hudson Bay Company which he does go up and start in the north. So that was just a sort of side. When when you learn about Radisson at school, it tends to be he was French, 
Sometimes they'll say French Canadian, but I don't think he would ever have thought of himself that way. So he's French. He goes to the English and he starts the Hudson Bay Company and disappears. Well, he doesn't. He bounces around. He yo-yos back and forth um, and crosses the ocean many, many times and betrays everybody, every king he can. And and so he goes back to the French and he starts this, this business in Hudson Bay. And then he turns around and he betrays that. He 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 goes off to the English, and and they sail up and grab his nephew and a whole bunch of other people, ship them off to England. Um, it's just ghastly behavior. And at that point, the French are like, "We find him, we kill him. Fifty piastres for anybody who gets him." They put a price. As you say, he, this is a man who toggles between uh, the continents, between cultures, uh, very easily. And when you think about people back then of that class, um, now I would I would say he's a little more than sort of peasant class because somebody taught him how to write, so there's something going on back then. But most people didn't leave the town they lived in unless they were a soldier, and then they were you know come back in a few years, and then they would never leave. But this idea that a guy can cross the ocean ten times on those little ships, which aren't much bigger than the boats you see in a in a regular city harbor, uh, I mean pleasure boats. Uh, and and not drown. I mean, that's an astounding thing in its own right. Um, get into the royal courts of France and England and 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 speak the language very quickly. Learns the language. He learns Dutch. He learns English um, very fast. I, I think it took him three months to learn Dutch from and and from knowing only French. And that's hard. That's really something. And and same with English. He's he's writing in English, writing his whole life story a year and a half after he's arrived in England. Yeah, there's all this toggling around, um, this sort of wide-open acceptance of whatever the situation is, and rather than lose hope or freak out, which I would have done, I think, um, or just sort of resign yourself to the fact that you're screwed, um, he just keeps going. He's he's unkillable. He eventually comes back to the Hudson's Bay Company. He'll continue some trading. He'll settle in London, and he... Will he'll die there, penniless? Uh, pretty much, yep. Pretty much. Um, if it wasn't for if it wasn't for Samuel Pepys, we'd have forgotten about Radisson. Can you tell us about that? When you think of Radisson, there's, there's all kinds of um, really interesting young men like this at that period, and I'm thinking of all the young men that Champlain sent out, like uh, Brule. Yes, and the other young men that went up and lived with the indigenous people. This was certainly something the French did quite a bit. Now, with Radisson's case, it, it wasn't deliberate. He he got grabbed, but he would he could, that fact that he could read and write a, and then the fact that Pepys was a hoarder and swiped the manuscript uh, and kept it for among his papers. Um, that was that was this thing that that made Radisson come back alive as a historical character. The uh, he gets mentioned in passing by authors uh, until that stuff surfaces, and even after that, people like Winston Churchill get him wrong. Like Winston Churchill in his biography of Marlborough, who who Radisson knew, said Radisson left. The French, because he was a Protestant, which isn't true. I don't think he had any religion really of, of any kind. Um, so, so, so Pepys stuff survives, and, and it's kind of neat. A, it's in English, uh, so it's picked up fast by Americans, and it's American 
uh, publishers start publishing Radisson's work in the 1880s. And in the 1920s, 30s, the people who had settled in, um, in, in Minnesota were looking for a founder. And they found Radisson as their founder. And that's, and because he was the founder of Minnesota, which he probably wasn't, I mean, he, he certainly wasn't trying to find, well, he find anything other than furs. He, um, they named a hotel after him in, in Minneapolis. And then some guy bought the hotel and started a chain. So, so the most famous thing about him is the chain. There's also a, a company that makes boat cleats called Radisson Boat Cleats, which I find funny. My boat is tied to one. Uh, so he, 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 he pops back out of history. Once it, Women like him. And uh, most of his biographers, his most enthusiastic biographers, are women. One of these women is, of course, uh, Germaine Warkenton, and she published two volumes of Radisson's writings uh, for the Champlain Society. The first volume was called Voyages, and it came out in 2012. Uh, and uh, volume two came out a couple of years later, uh, more, more of his writings in 2014. Were these volumes of help to you? Mark? Absolutely. Professor Workington was able to build on the archival work of Grace Lanute, who wrote a book called Caesar of the Wilderness. In uh, It came out in like 1932. And so so uh, Grace Lanute had, had sort of scouted the, the, the field, but it was, uh, it was Professor Workington who pulled together not just the material that Lanute found, but she was able to come up with a lot of archival work uh, of, of letters that he had written. Radisson had his friend at court, and uh, Professor Workington had built on other people's work to find the correspondence between Radisson's buddy at the French court and, um, and Radisson. Another thing that uh, she did was that she was able to pull in the next piece of writing by Radisson, which was in French. And it was a, uh, another biography that, that, he, that he wrote to, uh, at the time to the Duke of York, but, uh, who, but who quickly became James II around the, not long after he got this document from Radisson. Uh, and and that's, where the whole, that's where Radisson's life hits a political wall. So she has that in there. And that was discovered in the Royal Archives at Windsor Castle a few years ago. Now, it's it's a great thing to, just to pull the documents together, but the value added of Professor Workington's work is the notations where she contextualizes this material, explains um, what a lot of the um, things that would sort of fly over our heads um, are about and what they mean, and it was a beautiful piece of work. Now I've got to say, I was I had pitched the Radisson project before. Her, her work came out, but I was really, really excited that she had done that work because like other Champlain Society volumes, or double volumes in this case, they're such a solid roadmap of where you're going to take something. So say you're going to write a history of the Black Donnellys. You, you can't do that now uh, unless you're an absolute fool without looking at Rini's book on the Black Donnellys. Um, Absolutely. The Champlain Society volume of many years ago. Yeah, well, not that many. Um, I, I want to come back to Redisson. Uh, just to finish up with Redisson before I, before we talk about about you a little bit more. At the end of the day, what surprised you the most about Pierre Esprit Redisson? Uh, the thing that surprised me the most was how connected it was to 
events around him. Now that that shouldn't have been a surprise because I worked in media and I worked on the Parliament Hill for a long time, and I I see the connections between political decisions and the political atmosphere of things and um, and people's what happens in people's lives. And some people don't like the book, the fact that in this book, I always put him in the context of what's going on around him, which is two things. One is early capitalism, the creation of capitalism. And the second thing is the settling of the religious wars uh, of the 17th and um, the 16th and 17th centuries. That's where he fits in. He comes in right at the restoration of the Stuarts, and he he is finished off politically by the by the deposing of James II, and these aren't things that happen at the same time he's doing things. They are actually cause and effect in his life. So when he gets to the to the Stuart Court, it's it's uh, sixteen it's sixteen sixty five. He. Um, they're just restored themselves. So these are people who are just as dangerous and and wild characters as he is. And I think that's why he meshes with them, where maybe in a hun hundred years later, when he's dealing with nobility that's landed and has never seen the kind of uh, uncertainty and action and adventure that the Stuart court has seen, uh, he's able to fit in. He might not have fit in at, at, at some other period of time. That... that and, and then he he gets dumped and destroyed by when this group of people hit the wall in, in 1688. What can we learn from the life of Pierre Esprit Redisson? I think on a personal level, you can learn to... Uh, I, I think he's a lesson in rolling with the punches. He survives so many things because he just lets things go and, and just goes with the flow of things. He is resilient. He's resilient and he's, he's, I don't know whether he's brave or just unaware of consequences. He just keeps going. He, 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 when he, when he gets captured and he just starts to cook for these guys, um, knowing that he's in a terrible situation and, and just pretending it's not, anything to worry about that's really neat really a, a smart move and whether he's totally on the ball all the time or just sort of lucky in the in the way he handles things um he comes out in one piece all the time even when even when his career is over he's still living on Drury Lane and he's and he's making a, a fairly decent amount of money from his little pension that he has to go to court to get and um, he's living in London at a really interesting time. He's quite safe and yeah. he's happy and he's got some kids and uh, servants and stuff like that. So, so he's not entirely penniless then. It, it really, you know, as you would have thought as if he didn't know the story that somewhere he ends up in a shallow grave. Now his grave does get bombed by the Germans in 1940, um, 1941, but uh, he does, I don't think he really cared. <laughs> Mark, I want to talk about you. Um, you have a PhD in history. You have published scholarly work. You've also worked as a journalist, and you are a lawyer. What prompted you to go back to Radisson and to tell this story again? 
it was a nice break, frankly. From um, this is how you take breaks. Well, the, the two previous books were uh, a book about ISIS propaganda and recruitment. That was real fun. Uh, the book before that was on Stephen Harper's information control and and just the general control freakery of Ottawa in the uh, latter years of the of the Harper government. Um, that was no fun either, really. Um, and then I had done law school and. I got offered the book. We I pitched it like around 2005, maybe, um, when I was actually doing my PhD. And everyone said, well, who's going to buy it? Who's going to buy it? And it got turned down, and I'd forgotten about it. And then when Oasis came to me, I had finished law school, but I had an article. I, I went back to law school when I was 50. I went to law school when I was 57, uh, which was a stupid and crazy thing to do. And, and I do think I have a little more Radisson in me than I would like to admit. And um, I, I had a choice between doing the book and articling. So what I did was I worked on the book like crazy for three months and realized I could article and write the book at the same time, which is what I did. And so I came out of articles with this book manuscript. Do you think that your legal training has shaped the way you've approached the book? I mean, you, you talked about your journalism experience and this ability, and, your, and your, obviously your, your, your historical studies, your, your formal historical studies have taught you to uh, integrate personal life into political, economic, social context. Did your did your legal uh, studies help you at all with this kind of thing? PhD studies and legal studies are really different beasties. Um, whether you can compare them as being harder or easier is kind of a mugs game. But um, PhD work is is all about research, and and legal work is about sort of working through the problem and explaining it. I was afraid I'd lost my ability to write in law school because legal writing is often quite horrible. I was able to work out things like uh, when, when Radisson had to sue over his pension, which he, he did when he was an old man, I was able to understand why he lost. His lawyer screwed up. And yes. <laughs> I could actually write a paper on that now if I wanted to, of why Radisson, Radisson went to the wrong court because there were two kinds, well, there were three kinds of courts back then. So he went with two problems. One, he should have gone to a court of common law, and one, he should have gone to a court of equity as two different cases, but he took them both to one court, and the court of common law, a court of equity gave him his pension, which is something that's forward-thinking. A debt in common law, they would not give him payment on because he was in the wrong court. And I spotted that, and it, was, I start, it started a very lively conversation among lawyers who wondering, they don't teach equity and law anymore. Um, we used to have courts of equity and law in, in Canada until the 1850s. And I can get into what they are, um, but but basically um, courts of common law are courts that we think of as courts that, that deal with things in the now, things that have happened, uh, debts that are owed, uh, trespasses that have been made, uh, Def, uh, well, I should get a defamation because that's an ecclesiastical court matter. Um, but courts of equity are orders to do things. So that's like getting an injunction to get people um, to stop picketing a place or, or making you pay a pension. So I can spot that. In, in it's, I mean, it's just a little quirky thing. Um, but I, I also really given a lot of thought to how I would tell the story and not make it preachy or boring or whatever and, and um, make it very accessible 
So you think your journalism background helped you in this case? I think the legal writing helped me better um, oh, yeah. because journalists write to a very tight formula. Even magazine journalists, going back to law school broke me out of writing in that kind of formula. So I became a much better, I became a better writer when I did my PhD because I became a better researcher. I became a much better communicator after law school because I was, I had learned how to make a case and, and how to use things like humor, how to break it up. And, um, you know, and, and, and then in my sort of private reading, I had, and, and which, which I hadn't used for any graduate work, I had read a lot of books on early capitalism. I'd read like Fernand Broidel's work. I had yes. uh, Tawny, I looked at all the, I, uh, Weber, all these people who looked at the intersections between religion and politics and the rise of capitalism and thought putting this character in that world would be really neat. And uh, making taking him out of Canada and putting him in the Atlantic world uh, everybody says this is an indigenous history or it's a Canadian history, but it's not really. It's a it's a history of this Atlantic world where you have dysfunction on one side of the ocean, spreading dysfunction on the other side of the ocean, where you have a, um, a Europe that has come through uh, <laughs> decades of war and genocide and cruelty, uh, and is is a very violent culture at this point now interacting and contacting uh, another group of people who are living in a very different way. And then we know what, we all know what happens. Radisson doesn't and is, is not part of a colonial project per se, in, in the sense that Radisson didn't want to have a farm in some native person's land or, or run native people out of anywhere. He wanted to stay put and, and get them first. Uh, but he's there for all of the things that set up the world's problems uh, in terms of colonialism and indigenous uh, contact. I want to ask you a last question um, in the sense of where this book fits in history writing in Canada. And I'd like to get your impressions of this. I mean, you won the RBC Taylor Prize, it's very rare that a history book wins this prize. Do you consider this to be a pop history? And I'm not saying this, I'm not saying this to be, you do have footnotes in this book. Um, how do you consider your book? They're excellent footnotes, I have, and I love footnotes, and yours are very good. Is this, I mean, do you see this as a scholarly book? Do you see this as it seems to me as though you've crossed over categories with this volume. Do you agree with that? Yeah, um, I have. Boy, we could do a whole program on where Canadian history is at. Well, let's start. Okay. There are times <laughs> when I never want to write about Canada again. Yes. Like where I think. Um, Why is that? There's so little buy-in of an idea of Canadian history um on 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 a scale so I, I i want to be really clear about this because it's very easy to be mis misinterpreted or or even sort of misspeak we we do a really good job of micro history now and we should for people like professor warkerton and the champlain society do a type of history 
that nobody else is doing really. I mean, who else is collecting documents now? Nobody. And putting together the foundations of other people's work, and and which is an incredibly generous and and useful thing to do. It's formidable time. You know this. Thankless. There's no money in it. Um, if you don't have an academic job, um, you can't do this. Uh, or, or or a very generous spouse. Okay, so so we'll look at that side of things. We do a pretty good job of academic history, and academic history is very, very focused now on nooks and crannies and small scans of time and space. Uh, Radisson's story goes from 1636 to 1710. You will not find people writing uh, books that deal with that kind of span of time and space. Uh, and biographies in Canada are really rare now. Um, Autobiographies are not, and memoir writing is is really what is being pushed now by media and by funding agencies like the Canada Council as being literary nonfiction. So, what the fuck? I'm 63 years old. I can just say it. Okay. This year, the there were I think 10 nominees for. The Governor General's Award for Nonfiction and the Writers Trust Prize for Nonfiction, which is these are the two of the top prizes. All but one were memoirs. the The prize that I won, um, there was a biography, there was a very good uh, history of the mosquito and its impact. There's that sort of vary of history where people look at. The impact of say the potato on the world where you know how it changed everything or you know five fruits that you stole the word out of my mouth yeah um so so there was that book there was a there was a book on murder and missing indigenous women there was a, a really neat book it's hard to describe zaya tong's book uh, there was a book about um about whether it was a very um current events type of book whether police take sexual assault claims by women seriously yes so this was a quite a bit different group of nominees. There were no memoirs in that. There was sort of memoir aspects of one book, but that was it. And the RBC Taylor Prize is gone. Uh, so so if we if we took that prize out of the equation, the one that I won, I won the last one. No one's no one's ever going to do better than me on it. Um, all of the all of the prizes are directed towards memoir writing. All of the funding for people who aren't academics. So people who don't qualify for Shirk is all geared towards memoir writing and a type of literary nonfiction that does not involve telling historical Canadian stories. Right. So basically, who's financing this? Um, well, me, because I didn't make any money on this book in terms of what I could have done with that time. Um, and and I mean I'm not don't cry for me I, I I make a good buck my my wife makes a good buck but but if my neighbor who doesn't wanted to do this kind of work they can't there's a lot of people who might want to do this kind of work um, this is these kind of books used to be written by journalists who didn't have any historical training yes. and that was the great flaw of the books um, books by people like Pierre Burton and Peter Newman um, you know where Peter Newman actually has to take 
Caesars of the Wilderness swiped that title from Grace Lanute. And so journalists don't do this kind of work anymore. They, they write true crime books and they write, you know, wither the senator some damn thing. And this whole area of biographic writing um, that professors used to do somewhat. And I'm thinking of people like A.B. McKillop at, uh, at Carleton. Uh, that generation of, of, of scholars is shuffling off this mortal coil, as will I. So like, I take a look at this and I think, okay, well, we have, I have to sell books for this to work. Um, and every moment I spend working on a book is a moment I'm not practicing law and making what I make as a lawyer. But that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not a greedy person. Um, I have to rely on one retailer. I have to rely on one medium, which is basically the CBC, because all the book pages are gone uh, in the newspapers. And CBC is the only thing that has any reach. And the thing that made this book is not the prize. It was the fact that Paul Kennedy read the book, and Paul Kennedy was the host of CBC Ideas. And we did a one-hour program on it that ran five times last summer and kept the book on a bestseller list all last summer. If Paul Kennedy hadn't read and liked the book we would have maybe sold a few hundred copies. It would never have got anywhere. You're very pessimistic, Mark Borey. Where else could it have, you know, it was, it, you could look and see, like it got a good Globe and Mail uh, review, and you could see a little uptick in, in sales. But your point, is, your point is that very few history books are reviewed in the Globe and Mail's pages. Yeah, well, and even if they are, not, not that many people are reading the newspapers anymore. We don't have the history to tie us together, but we don't have the media tying us together anymore either. And except for the CBC, um, yeah. every time the CBC ran that ideas program, that book was back high on the bestseller list. Um, it would be great if Canadians were talking about their history and, and cared enough that you didn't have to get lucky like that, uh, which, which makes me wonder how it's going to go. As, as the years go by. And I don't want to be too pessimistic because I think somehow if you write a good book, it may be that it will get discovered. Uh, sometimes uh, independent booksellers hand sell a book that they really like. But we there are, people haven't been reading this kind of history for quite a while. And you constantly hear, well, we, I mean, everybody's ever taught history. And I've taught history at university too. You know, I thought history was boring. I thought history was boring. Well, you know, yeah, if I had a nickel for every time I heard that, I you know I could buy a politician. Um, you, but you took a chance on Redison. You had absolutely no reason to expect that it would be the success that it was. Are you surprised? At the end of the day, you're surprised of the great success that it's been? Blown away. In fact, yeah. I'm negotiating for a book now, and I've been told that the the, the, the I know I I keep thinking I don't want to do, do another Canadian book. I have. I have a story, an American story that is so good. <laughs> Love to write it, um, but I, this my editor on this book is saying that, that the that the point of view of Canadian publishers after looking at the sale, this book is going to sell about thirty thousand copies by Christmas, and now Canadian publishers in Canada are taking second look at books that they wouldn't have published. Uh, because they thought that books like this don't sell. I never could understand why people thought a book like that wouldn't sell, because I would have bought it. 
Well, I, I, I have to say, I, and I think I think this is a very important lesson uh, about your book, about the great success of your book. I mean, it's a very successful book because it's extremely well written, and because you tell a very a very compelling tale of a very exciting man, a captivating man. You do it well, and you were able to take advantage of the meager publicity that is afforded any Canadian writer of history in this country. Uh, and uh, I think the book deserves uh, all the uh, the plaudits it has received. The the There's a lesson, though, here, which is that Canadian history, given the right kind of treatment, given the right kind of publicity, can still go get an audience. And maybe, and I'll come back to where I started, maybe there is still out there enough people of a certain vintage who saw the TV show, Redisson, in the late 50s when you were born, uh, when I was born, uh, who have a certain image of Redisson in their minds and they wanted to see it on, on, on the page. And I wanted to address that. I never saw the Radisson TV series, but they had one about Deberville. Yes. Oh, a wonderful series. Yes. I love that. They didn't show him murdering all those people in Newfoundland, but no. But he's he was that was a great series and I've never heard anybody talk about it. Well, Zibervin might be your next topic. He is he's at least as good as, as good a story as Radisson. Very much. When's the last time anybody wrote a bio of Deberville? It's been a long, long... It's your next project, Mark Bory. Yeah, no, it's not. We'll leave you on that. Thank you very much for sharing your ideas with us. No problem. Thank you. That was Mark Bory, the author of Bush Runner, The Adventures of Pierre Esprit Radisson, published by Biblioasis, and as he indicated, the last winner of the RBC Taylor Prize. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on August 14th, only because of the intrepid efforts of our producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you next time.